Chapter 5 of Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by a fine voice. Chapter 5 The Voyage to West Africa The Mayumba, Fearful Weather, An Escape, Hanno's Voyage, Atlantis, A Land of Death, Black Water Fever, Missionaries, Strange Fish, Danger of luxury, a foolish swim, the ship on fire, England once more. It had always been my intention to take a voyage as ship surgeon when I had taken my degree, as I could in this way see something of the world, and at the same time earn a little of the money which I so badly needed if I were ever to start in practice for myself. When a man is in the very early twenties, he will not be taken seriously as a practitioner, and though I looked old for my age, it was clear that I had to fill in my time in some other way. My plans were all exceedingly fluid, and I was ready to join the Army, Navy, Indian Service, or anything which offered an opening. I had no reason to think that I would find a billet upon a passenger ship, and had nearly forgotten that I had my name down when I suddenly received a telegram, telling me to come to Liverpool and to take medical charge of the African Steam Navigation Company's Mayumba, bound for the west coast. In a week I was there, and on October 22nd, 1881, we started on our voyage. The Mayumba was a trim little steamer of about 4,000 tonnes, a giant after my experience in the 200-ton whaler. She was built for commerce carrying mixed cargoes to the coast and coming back with palm oil in puncheons, palm nuts in bulk, ivory and other tropical products. What with whale oil and palm oil, there certainly seemed to be something greasy about my horoscope. There was room for twenty or thirty passengers, and it was for their behoof that I was paid some twelve pounds a month. It was well that we were seaworthy, for we put out in a violent gale, which became so bad as we emerged from the Mersey that we were forced into Hollyhead for the night. Next day, in violent thick weather, with a strong sea running, we made our way down the Irish Sea. I shall always believe that I may have saved the ship from disaster, for as I was standing near the officer of the watch, I suddenly caught sight of a lighthouse standing out in a rift in the fog. It was on the port side, and I could not imagine how any lighthouse could be on the port side of a ship which was, as I knew, well down on the Irish coast. I hate to be an alarmist, so I simply touched the mate's sleeve, pointed to the dim outline of the lighthouse and said, Is that all right? He fairly jumped as his eye lit upon it, and he gave a yell to the men at the wheel, and rang a violent signal to the engine room. The lighthouse, if I remember right, was the Tusker, and we were heading right into a rocky promontory which was concealed by the rain and fog. I have been lucky in my captains, for Captain Gordon Wallace was one of the best, and we have kept in touch during the later years. Our passengers were mostly for Madeira, but there were some pleasant ladies bound for the coast, and some unpleasant negro traders, whose manners and bearing were objectionable, but who were patrons of the line and must therefore be tolerated. Some of these palm-oil chiefs and traders have incomes of many thousands a year, but as they have no cultivated tastes, they can only spend their money on drink, debauchery and senseless extravagance. One of them, I remember, had a choice selection of the demi-monde of Liverpool to see him off. The storms followed us all the way down the channel and across the bay, which is normal, I suppose, at such a time of year. 
Everyone was seasick, so as doctor I had some work to do. However, before we reached Madeira, we ran into fine weather, and all our troubles were soon forgotten. One never realises the comfort of a dry deck until one has been ankle-deep for a week. I missed the sea-boots and rough-and-ready dress of the whaler, for when one is in blue serge and gilt buttons, one does not care to take a ducking. Just as we thought, however, that we were all right, a worse gale than ever broke over us. The wind luckily behind us, so that it helped us on our way. With jib, trysail and main staysail, which was as much as we could stand, we lurched and staggered, swept every now and then by the big Atlantic comas, which were phosphorescent at night, so that flames of liquid fire came coursing down the decks. Very glad we were when, after a week of storm, we saw the rugged peaks of Porto Sancto, an outlier of Madeira, and finally came to anchor in Funchal Bay. It was dark when we reached our moorings, and it was good to see the lights of the town and the great dark loom of the hills behind it. A lunar rainbow spanned the whole scene, a rare phenomenon which I have never seen before or since. Tenerife was our next stopping place, Santa Cruz being the port of call. In those days it did a great trade in cochineal, which was derived from an insect cultivated on the cacti. When dried, they furnished the dye, and a packet of the creatures averaged £350 at that time. But now I suppose that the German aniline dyes have killed the trade as completely as whaling has been killed by the mineral. A day later we were at Las Palmas, capital of Gran Canary, whence, looking back, we had a fine view of the famous Tenerife Peak, some sixty miles away. Leaving Las Palmas, we were in the delightful region of the northeast trade winds, the most glorious part of the ocean, seldom rough, yet always lively, with foam-capped seas and a clear sky. Day by day it grew hotter, however, and when we lost the trades, and sighted the Ile de Los of the Sierra Leone coast, I began to realise what the tropics meant. When you feel your napkin at meals to be an intolerable thing, and when you find that it leaves a wet wheel across your white duck trousers, then you know that you really have arrived. On November 9th we reached Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, our first port of call upon the African main. A lovely spot, but a place of death. Here our ladies left us, and indeed it was sad to see them go, for female lives are even shorter than male upon the coast. I speak of the days of malaria and blackwater fever, before Ronald Ross and others had done their great work of healing and prevention. It was a truly dreadful place in the early eighties, and the despair which reigned in the hearts of the white people made them take liberties with alcohol, which they would not have dared to take in a healthier place. A year's residence seemed to be about the limit of human endurance. I remember meeting one healthy-looking resident who told me that he had been there three years. When I congratulated him, he shook his head. I am a doomed man. I have advanced Bright's disease, said he. One wondered whether the colonies were really worth the price we had to pay. From Sierra Leone we steamed to Monrovia, which is the capital of the Negro Republic of Liberia, which, as the name implies, was founded mainly by escaped slaves. So far as I could see, it was orderly enough. Though all small communities which take themselves seriously have a comic aspect. Thus, at the time of the Franco-German War, Liberia is said to have sent out its single customs boat, which represented its official navy, 
and stopped the British mail ship in order to send word to Europe that it did not intend to interfere in the matter. It is a very monotonous view, for whether it is the Ivory Coast or the Gold Coast, or the Liberian shore, it always presents the same features, burning sunshine, a long swell breaking into a white line of surf, a margin of golden sand, and then the low green bush with an occasional palm tree rising above it. If you have seen a mile, you have seen a thousand. As I write now, these ports at which we stopped, Grand Bassam, Cape Palmas, Accra, Cape Coast Castle, all form the same picture in my mind. One incident only I can remember. At some small village, the name of which I have forgotten, there came off a tall young Welshman in a state of furious excitement. His niggers had mutinied, and he was in fear of his life. There they are, waiting for me, he cried, and pointed to a dusky group upon the distant beach. We offered to take him on, but he could not leave his property, so all we could do was to promise to send a gunboat up from Cape Coast Castle. I have often wondered how such people got on after the German menace compelled us to draw in all our outlying fleets. This coast is dotted at night with native fires, some of them of great extent, arising no doubt from their habit of burning the grass. It is interesting that in Hanno's account of his journey down the coast, the only piece of Carthaginian literature which has reached us, he talks also of the fires which he saw at night. As he speaks of guerrillas, it is probable that he got as far as the Gaboon, or south of the line. He saw great volcanic activity, and the remains of it is still visible at Fernando Po, which is almost all volcanic. In Hanno's time, however, the hills were actually spouting fire, and the country was a sea of flame, so that he dare not set foot on shore. I have wondered sometimes whether the last cataclysm at Atlantis may not have been much later than we think. The account of Plato puts it at about 9,000 BC, but it may well have been a gradual thing, and the last spasm have been that of which Hanno saw the traces. All this activity which he described is exactly opposite the spot where the old continent was supposed to have been. Our ships have rough and ready ways as they jog down the coast. Once we moved on while a hundred native visitors were still on board. It was funny to see them dive off and make for their canoes. One of them had a tall hat, an umbrella, and a large coloured picture of the saviour, all of which he had bought at the trading booths, which the men rig up in the forecastle. These impedimenta did not prevent him from swimming to his boat. At another minor port, since we were pressed for time, we simply threw our consignment of barrel staves overboard, knowing that soon or late they would wash up on the beach, though how the real owner could make good his claim to them, I do not know. Occasionally the native scores in this game. Some years ago, before Dahomey was annexed by the French, the captain took the oil casks on board, at Wydar, by means of a long rope and a donkey engine, an ingenious way of avoiding the surf, which came to a sudden stop when a company of the famous Amazons appeared, and threatened to fire upon the ship if they did not pay their dues to the surf boats in the ordinary fashion. I had myself to pay my dues to the climate, for on November 18th I find an eloquent gap in my diary. We had reached Lagos, and there, rolling in a greasy swell off that huge lagoon, the germ or the mosquito, or whatever it was, reached me, and I was down with a very sharp fever. I remember staggering to my bunk, 
and then all was blotted out. As I was myself doctor, there was no one to look after me, and I lay for several days fighting it out with death in a very small ring, without a second. It speaks well for my constitution that I came out a victor. I remember no psychic experience, no vision, no fears, nothing save a nightmare fog from which I emerged as weak as a child. It must have been a close call, and I had scarcely sat up before I heard that another victim, who got it at the same time, was dead. A week later found me, convalescent and full of energy once more, up the Bonny River, which certainly never got its name from the Scottish adjective, for it is in all ways hateful with its brown-smelling stream and its mango swamps. The natives were all absolute savages, offering up human sacrifices to sharks and crocodiles. The captain had heard the screams of the victims and seen them dragged down to the water's edge, while on another occasion he had seen the protruding skull of a man who had been buried in an ant heap. It is all very well to make game of the missionaries, but how could such people ever be improved if it were not for the labours of devoted men? We called at Fernando Po and later at Victoria, a lovely little settlement upon the main, with the huge peak of the Cameroons rising behind it. A dear homely Scotch lassie was playing the part of missionary there, and if she did not evangelise, she at least civilised, which is more important. It lies in a beautiful bay, studded with islands, and well wooded all round. For some reason, the whole style of the scenery changes completely here, and it is the more welcome after the thousand miles of monotony to the north. All this land went, for some reason, to Germany later, and has now reverted to the French, who are not, as a rule, good colonial neighbours. I went ashore at Victoria, and I cannot forget my thrill, when what I thought was a good-sized bluebird passed me, and I found that it was a butterfly. To reach Old Calabar we had to steam for sixty miles up the Old Calabar River, a channel lying so near the shore that we brushed the trees on one side. I lay in wait with my rifle, but though I saw the swirl of several alligators, none emerged. Old Calabar seemed the largest and most prosperous place we had visited, but here also the hand of death was over all, and it was eat, drink and be merry, for the old and unsatisfactory reason. Here again we met one of these young lady pioneers of civilization. Civilization is the better, but it is a stern and dreadful call which summons a woman to such a work. Getting a canoe, I ascended the river for several miles to a place called Creek Town. Dark and terrible mangrove swamps lay on either side, with gloomy shades where nothing that is not horrible could exist. It is indeed a foul place. Once in an isolated tree, standing in a flood, I saw an evil-looking snake, worm-coloured and about three feet long. I shot him and saw him drift downstream. I learned later in life to give up killing animals, but I confess that I have no particular compunctions about that one. Creek Town is in native territory, and the King sent down a peremptory order that we should report ourselves to him, but as it sounded ominous and might mean a long delay, we got our paddles out and were soon back in British waters. I had a curious experience one morning. A large ribbon-shaped fish, about three or four feet long, came up and swam upon the surface near the ship. Having my gun handy, I shot it. I don't think five seconds could have elapsed before another larger and thicker fish, 
A big catfish, I should say, darted up from the depths, seized the wounded fish by the middle and dragged it down. So murderous is the food search and so keen the watch in nature. I saw something similar in the mixed tank of an aquarium once, where a fish stunned himself by swimming against the glass front and was instantly seized and devoured by his neighbour. A strange fish to which I was introduced at Calabar was the electrical torpedo fish. It is handed to you in an earthenware saucer, a quiet little drab creature, about five inches long, and you are asked to tickle its back. Then you learn exactly how high you can jump. The death-like impression of Africa grew upon me. One felt that the white man with his present diet and habits was an intruder who was never meant to be there, and that the great sullen brown continent killed him as one crushes knits. I find in my diary, O oh Africa, where are the charms that sages have seen in thy face? Better dwell in old England on arms than be rich in that terrible place. The life aboard ship, however, was an easy and in some ways a luxurious one, too luxurious for a young man who had his way to make in the world. Premature comfort is a deadly enervating thing. I remember considering my own future. I stood upon the poop with a raging thunderstorm around me, and seeing very clearly that one or two more such voyages would sap my simple habits, and make me unfit for the hard struggle which any sort of success would need. The idea of success in literature had never crossed my mind. It was still of medicine only that I thought, but I knew by my Birmingham experience how long and rough a path it was for those who had no influence and could not afford to buy. Then and there I vowed that I would wander no more, and that was surely one of the turning points in my life. A wander-yar is good, but two wander-yar may mean damnation, and it is hard to stop. I find that on the same day of fruitful meditation I swore off alcohol for the rest of the voyage. I drank quite freely at this period of my life, having a head and a constitution which made me fairly immune, but my reason told me that the unbounded cocktails of West Africa were a danger, and with an effort I cut them out. There is a certain subtle pleasure in abstinence, and it is only socially that it is difficult. If we were all abstainers as a matter of course, like the real Mahomedans, none of us would ever miss it. I did a mad thing at Cape Coast Castle, for, in a spirit either of bravado or pure folly, I swam round the ship, or at least for some length along her and back again. I suppose it was the consideration that black folk go freely into the water which induced me to do it. For some reason, white folk do not share the same immunity. As I was drying myself on deck, I saw the triangular back fin of a shark rise to the surface. Several times in my life I have done utterly reckless things with so little motive that I have found it difficult to explain them to myself afterwards. This was one of them. The most intelligent and well-read man whom I met on the coast was a Negro, the American consul at Monrovia. He came on with us as a passenger. My starved literary side was eager for good talk, and it was wonderful to sit on deck discussing Bancroft and Motley, and then suddenly realise that you were talking to one who had possibly been a slave himself, and was certainly the son of slaves. He had thought a good deal about African travel. The only way to explore Africa is to go without arms and with few servants. 
You would not like it in England if a body of men came armed to the teeth and marched through your land. The Africans are quite as sensitive. It was the method of Livingstone as against the method of Stanley. The former takes the braver and better man. This Negro gentleman did me good, for a man's brain is an organ for the formation of his own thoughts, and also for the digestion of other people's, and it needs fresh fodder. We had, of course, books aboard the ship, but neither many nor good. I cannot trace that I made any mental or spiritual advancement during the voyage, but I added one more experience to my chaplet, and I suppose it all goes to some ultimate result in character or personality. I was a strong, full-blooded young man, full of the joy of life, with nothing of what Oliver Wendell Holmes calls pathological piety and tuberculous virtues. I was a man among men. I walked ever among pitfalls, and I thank all ministering angels that I came through, while I have a softened heart for those who did not. Our voyage home, oil-gathering from port to port on the same but reversed route, was uneventful until the very last stride, when just as we were past Madeira, the ship took fire. Whether it was the combustion of coal dust has never been determined, but certainly the fire broke out in the bunkers, and as there was only a wooden partition between these bunkers and a cargo of oil, we were in deadly danger. For the first day we took it lightly as a mere smoulder, and for a second and third day we were content to seal the gratings as far as possible to play down on it with the hose, and to shift the coal away from the oil. On the fourth morning, however, things took a sudden turn for the worse. I copy from my logbook. January 9th. I was awakened early in the morning by the purser, Tom King, poking his head in at my door, and informing me that the ship was in a blaze, and that all hands had been called and were working down below. I got my clothes on, but when I came on deck... Nothing was to be seen of it save thick volumes of smoke from the bunker ventilators and a lurid glow down below. I offered to go down, but there seemed to be as many working as could be fitted in. I was then asked to call the passengers. I waked each in turn, and they all faced the situation very bravely and coolly. One, a Swiss, sat up in his bunk, rubbed his eyes, and in answer to my remark, "'The ship is on fire,' said, I have often been on ships that were on fire. Splendid mendax, but a good spirit. All day we fought the flames, and the iron side of the ship was red hot at one point. Boats were prepared and provisioned, and no doubt at the worst we could row or sail them to Lisbon, where my dear sisters would be considerably surprised if their big brother walked in. However, we are getting the better of it, and by evening those ominous pillars of smoke were down to mere wisps. So ends an ugly business. On January 14th we were in Liverpool once more, and West Africa was but one more of the cinema reels of memory. It is, I am told, very much improved now in all things. My old friend and cricket companion, Sir Fred Guggisberg, is governor at Accra, and has asked me to see the old ground under very different auspices. I wish I could, but the sands still run, there is much to be done. End of chapter 5